This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. I wanted to, if you go for titles, I've given, actually wrestled with this title, I had a few titles, but I decided to go for a title, uh, Myth Busting, and we're going to be in two quite different places in Scripture, if you like to put your finger in your Bible, uh, I will have uh, the text on the screens, but we're going to be in Exodus uh, 34, and then we're going to jump into Romans chapter 8, but we'll get there in just a moment. You know, it's been said that people are meaning makers. Have you ever heard people being described in that way? This means that we are always trying to interpret our experiences. We're trying to make meaning of them. We're trying to ascribe meaning to what we're experiencing, or at least we're trying to ascribe meaning to it. And we do this at mundane levels. Uh, you would have done this this morning. Don't look at anyone just now. But someone greets you, and you think in your head, ooh, they were holding back a little bit. Or someone greets you and you think they were a little bit enthusiastic. Or every time you get a message, they've read it and haven't replied. Or what exactly does that emoji mean? As in, have you ever received emojis and you think, I'm not quite sure what exactly that emoji means. We are trying to make meaning all the time. We're reaching conclusions. But we do this with God as well, don't we? So things happen or they don't happen. Quite often it's the things that don't happen that are more problematic in our lives or in the lives of others. And we, we try to infer meaning from it. We even reach conclusions about God that are not based on Scripture, but are based on our experience or our lack of the experience that we wanted to experience. We live in a world which is full of perplexing circumstances, things that are on the news, and because of that, and the things that we were looking at, questions arise. I mean, the, the events with Russia and Ukraine, in our own city, we just had the worst floods in our history as a nation, where 435 people lost their lives in one day. There was 17 billion rand of damage to our city in one afternoon. And because of this, and because of things like this, because of things that perplex us, they can cause us to trouble our trouble. So there's a really trouble because of what's, what we're experiencing, but then we trouble our trouble with our thoughts and what we think about it. If this happened, is God really good? If this didn't happen, can you really say God is for me? Because this didn't happen. You can imagine, you can imagine how a mother in Ukraine or who has had to leave Ukraine who's been separated from or lost her children or doesn't know where her husband is, can be asking questions like this. In our own city, 4,500 people lost their homes in one afternoon. And you, could, you, can, you can imagine people like that really battling with questions that arise because of what they've experienced. And so because we're meaning makers, the circumstances of our lives 
can put the goodness of God or even the existence of God to the test. It's like God's on trial. Because of what we've experienced, what does this mean about God? Or can I even believe what the Bible says about God? Because these days, especially younger people, we are growing up in a society where we are dictated by our feelings even more than we are about truth. So the question, God, are you there? And are you really good? Are you really all-powerful? God, are you really for me? I think if you're honest, such questions are hard to turn off. Or they're hard to answer if you see them or hear them in others. But today I want, to, want you to see that the origin of these questions goes right back to the beginning of time. There is a lie about God right in the beginning of the Bible. When our enemy came to Adam and Eve, and Scripture says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast that God had created. That's what the Bible says about our enemy. And our enemy came right there at the start, and he was planting seeds of doubt and unbelief about God in the minds of Adam and Eve. So Genesis 3, chapter 1, he says, Did God really say... Paraphrase, he kind of says, he said you'll die. No way, you won't die if you eat that. He's insinuating that God was not trustworthy. That the things that God had said, you, you can't trust that. Are you just believing that? Just because he said it? What the devil was doing was he was sowing seeds of doubt about the goodness of God to Adam and Eve. The snake whispers to them, Essentially, God's holding out on you. God knows that if you eat that, He knows what will happen next. He knows that if you eat that fruit, it will change your life forever for the better. And so he doesn't, He's holding out on you. He's a killjoy, effectively. And brothers and sisters, I'm not overestimating to say that all of human history is the result of Adam and Eve believing those lies about the goodness of God. Everything you and I battle with in the world is because they believed the lie about God. But the bad news for us today is that not only do we live in the consequences of them believing that lie, but the devil hasn't stopped lying. And so ever since that fateful day in the garden, the devil has continued to try to sow seeds of doubt about the goodness of God deep into the human heart. And he does this to people who already believe. You might be here today. Someone might have invited you to church, and I'm so glad you're here. And you, you, you might be battling with to believe some stuff about God. You've got questions based on stuff in the news or in your life. And you might think it's just your own thoughts. But there is an enemy who doesn't want you to believe in God. And so he's trying to dissuade you from faith. And if you are a believer in Jesus, he's still lying to you too. Because he's whispering to the believer in Jesus, wanting to undermine your faith in Jesus, in God. And maybe up to now you just thought these were your own thoughts that you were wrestling with, struggling with. But today I want you to see that these thoughts are actually the results of lies that are sown by our enemy. I always say to people in Recreate Church, the devil doesn't have any new tricks. Because the old ones are still working. And this is one of them. 
He started in the garden and he's never stopped. He's trying to undermine your belief in the goodness of God. You see, the devil doesn't want you to believe in God. He doesn't want you to trust God. He doesn't want you to draw near to God and he doesn't want you to experience God's love and his faithfulness. And so he will do anything in his power to unsettle you and me, just like he did to Adam and Eve, to get us to doubt. But today with the authority of Scripture, I'm going to take us to two places. We're going to go to an encounter that Moses has with God and then we're going to look at Jesus. I want to, with the authority of Scripture, smash forever the myth, the lies that the devil sows to us. Are you ready? I want to pray because I will not convince you of anything today, but I want to ask Jesus to come in the power of his spirit and to do something. So if you're ready for that, why don't you close your eyes and just, Lord Jesus, we've sung about you. We say, be glorified. And right now we invite you, Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, would you help me to burn as I preach. Would you help your scripture to come alive in the hearts of men and women? And would you smash this lie forever? I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's start by looking at the truth about God that's revealed to Moses. The question is, what is God really like? Uh, We're reading Exodus at the moment as a church. We've got a Bible reading plan. And last month we read the first 18 chapters. This month we're reading the, the rest of the, of the book. And, and as you read Exodus, you realize that Moses starts off not even knowing who God is. He, he calls him the God, of, I'm the God of your fathers. When God introduces himself in Exodus 3, he, he's not your God. He's not even Yahweh. He's just the God of your fathers. And, and Moses is on a journey of discovering who this God is. And uh, we know that he's, he's on Mount Sinai and God reveals himself, but then he has to go back up Mount Sinai because uh, Israel had sinned with the golden calf, and he goes back up to Mount Sinai. That's the moment that we're at right now. And although the whole Bible answers the question, really, who is God, through many interactions that people have with God that we get to read that have been preserved for us, and although the Scriptures ultimately speak about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which we'll get to in a moment, as we seek to myth-bust this lie of the devil, I can't think of a better place to go than Exodus chapters 33 and 34. And so we're going to get to Exodus 34 in just a moment, but I want to build up to the revelation that God gives of himself to Moses. And so in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses is meeting with God. He's in the tent of meeting, and Moses prays, Please show me now your ways, that I may know you. That's Exodus 33 verse 13. God, would you please show me your ways? I want to know what you're like. That's essentially what he is praying. And he wants to know who God is because of all the journey that's ahead of him. And he goes on to ask in verse 18, God, please show me your glory. Show me what it is about you that's glorious. And so as Moses is asking God, essentially, God, what are you like? Show me. God replies and says, well, take two stone tablets, cut them, bring them with you tomorrow morning, present yourself uh, to me on top of Mount Sinai. And then God says this in verse uh, 19 of 33, he says, and I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will show you who I am. And Moses does as God commands him. And the next morning he ascends Mount Sinai to meet God again. And for God to essentially answer his request, which was, Show me your ways, show me what you like, 
and show me your glory. So he essentially asks God two questions in chapter 33. And this is what happens next. Let's read from uh, Exodus 34 from verse 5. And the Lord, that's Yahweh, wherever you see that. And the Lord came down in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed his name. He kind of said, this is my name, Yahweh, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord. And you see the repetition. He really needs to know, I'm the Lord, okay, I'm Yahweh. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. I'm the God who forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Press pause. This passage is so important to the Old Testament writers that it's repeated eight times in the Old Testament. It's a key text that if you want to know who is God, what's God like, here, this is it. This is God saying, I'm going to show you who I am. This is the moment. And so God is saying, this is what I am, this is what I'm like, and this is what makes me glorious. You see, Moses had asked, please show me your glory, and this is God's answer. But God's first response, this was in 34, God's first response when when Moses asked, show me your glory, is verse 19 of 33, where God says, Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I find that absolutely fascinating. Because if I was God, I would say, you need to understand how powerful I am and how important I am. Are you totally different to me? You know, I want to show you why you need to listen to me. And God doesn't do that. He says, I'm not going to show you my holiness. I'm not going to show you my mighty power. I'm not going to show you my throne room. I'm not going to show you my thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels. I'm not going to show you everything I've created. I'm going to show you my goodness. I'm going to show you how good I am. That's my glory. And so God, when he's asked to reveal his glory, he basically says, my glory is my goodness. My glory is how good I am. The glory and the magnificence of God, brothers and sisters, is how good he is. Can can you see the tragedy with Adam and Eve already? If they had believed the goodness of God, they would just never have listened to the lie. And so when Moses asks, who are you? God is focusing on his goodness. Because if someone is really good, you can trust them, right? Now, I know that if you were to define glory, you can't just define glory using the word goodness. I've found John Piper really helpful here that Basically, he says God's glory is not any one of God's perfections, but the beauty of them all, holding together all the time. But God does say, I'm going to let my goodness pass before you. The totality of his compassion and his graciousness and his love and his mercy and his forgiveness. And so although goodness doesn't cover everything of the aspects of God's glory, I do want us to not lose the impact that 
Yahweh here reveals and answers Moses' question about who is he by saying, I'm going to let my goodness pass before you. My glory is my goodness. And if you're sitting there and if you're underwhelmed by that, or if you're finding it hard to believe, I actually am not surprised at all. Because that's just evidence that you've listened to the son of the lie. If you're not absolutely shouting and screaming inside about the goodness of God, it just means the lie has infected you. Or if you're doubting what I've said, because but you don't know what happened to me or to my friend, it just means that the enemy's got to you as well. You see, ever since that fateful day that he whispered lies to Adam and Eve, he's made it hard for us to believe who God is, who God really is. But in this passage, God says to Moses, I am good. I am compassionate, I am gracious, I am not just love, I'm abounding in love, I am faithful, I'm true to a thousand generations, I'm the God who forgives iniquity, I forgive sin, I forgive rebellion, God is good. And so for you today and for for me today, we need to ask this question, do I really believe God When he answered Moses and said, my glory is my goodness, do we believe? Do we believe that? And I was thinking how it was so important at this moment in Israel's story and in Moses' story as their leader, it was so important that he got the goodness of God now because he was about to lead them for 40 years in a wilderness. And they were going to go through all sorts of things. And he was going to really need to trust God, so he was going to need to know God was good. And for you today, it's really important with all that you will face in your life. You need to know that you know that you know that God is good. You need to know that. Because otherwise, what's your faith going to be based on? It's not going to be on intellectual arguments. It's going to be on the basis of trust has to be anchored in something. In fact, it has to be anchored in someone and his character. And the Bible says God is good. But I hear you say, what about verses 7 and 8? Maybe you've been, I didn't ask you to read 7 and 8, but you've been reading verses 7 and 8. You shouldn't do that. Verse 7 and 8 says this in the CSB translation. So we've read about the goodness of God. God reveals himself. And then he says, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And then you say, ah, you see. Well, God does say, I will not leave the guilty unpunished. And we really need to hear that. If you're not yet believing in Jesus, you should particularly pay attention right now. God does say, I'll visit iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. But before you fixate on that, on this last line of God's revealing himself, of God's punishing guilty people and visiting iniquity of the fathers onto the third and fourth generation... I don't want you to miss out that God's right and wrathful just just wrath against sin and the consequences of sin is actually also linked to his goodness. Because if you've been sinned against, if God does not punish the perpetrator, then God does God love you. And so God's wrath and his righteous justice are linked. But I think more importantly in this passage, the way this passage is constructed, 
God's judgment lasts three or four generations if they're not forgiven by Jesus. There's the offer of forgiveness from Jesus. But God's mercy and His forgiveness lasts for a thousand generations. So it's three or four versus a thousand. And so the point of the words here is the extreme contrast, the extreme goodness of the forgiveness and the mercy of God, if you will accept it. And so unrepented sin is punished, and unredeemed sins do impact generations to come, and we've all experienced that. We can see that in our lives. But God is so, so merciful and willing to forgive, and God will pour out His love to a thousand generations if we would just ask Him for forgiveness. So maybe if you get stuck on the three or four generations rather than the thousand, again, it's just evidence that you've believed the lie and that you've gotten sidetracked by the lies of the enemy. Remember, God's glory is His goodness. You might be sitting there thinking, yes, okay, that's fine, but my experience of this or that denies what you've just said. Or what I hear about this person, what I've seen, that denies what you've said. And I want to say that I actually do empathize with your questions as a fellow meaning maker. And so I want us to move from Moses to Jesus. Because this passage in Romans 8 really speaks to us as we seek to overturn the lies of the enemy. So let's look at the truth about God that's revealed to us through Jesus. Moses' encounter is significant. I said to you it's one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament. It's repeated eight times. It helps us to overturn the lies of the enemy and overturn wrong conclusions we reach as meaning makers as we try to work out life. But there isn't any greater revelation about who God is and what He's like than Jesus Christ, His life, His death, and His resurrection. And so there's this point in Paul's letter to the Roman believers where he's been unpacking the gospel, and he gets to Romans chapter 8, verse 31, and he says this, What then shall we say to these things? And if you look at the these things, you've actually got to look back for me to verse 18 to, to, to see what are the these things that he's referring to. And he's actually referring, I believe, to the sufferings that we experience in the present time. That's verse 18. And then he asks a question, a rhetorical question. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Brothers and sisters, we've already said that the circumstances in our lives can cause us to put the goodness of God and the greatness or even the existence of God on trial. As if, God, you have to prove this to me. If this thing happened, the meaning maker thinks, what should I say to these things that are happening? Which is kind of what Paul's saying here. What should I say with these things that I've witnessed or experienced? God, are you really there? Are you really good? Are you all-powerful? And the answer that the Apostle Paul gives us here is, God is for us. You might say, oh, there's an if there. But actually, he's saying, God is for us. And because he is for us, we'll see that in just a moment. We know that he knows God's for us because we know the rest of Romans. We know what all that's come before it. And so the Apostle Paul encourages believers in Jesus saying this, if God is for us, who or what, the who there can be translated what as well, who or what can be against us? And I always in my mind add, succeed. Who can be against us and succeed? That's kind of implied there. Because we know things come against us and we know people come against us, but it's that them coming against us won't succeed. That's the idea. 
So Paul's arguments to the question, well, what shall we say about this that has happened or that that has happened? What shall we say? His, his answer is to call the believer to remember again that because God is good and because God is for you, then these things or that person cannot overturn the goodness of God in your life. They just can't. And so his answer is, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against, against us? His answer is nothing. It's no one can actually overturn the goodness of God in your life. Which leads to a very important question. But how can I know that God is for me? Because that's the if that's in that passage. If God's for you, so how can I know that God is for me? Well, how can you know? Is verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Brothers and sisters, because God the Father gave you Jesus, because God the Father sent the Son to come and live and to die in your place for your sin, because the Father did not save the Son from the cross, but allowed Him to die on the cross, because the Father sent the Son to die in your place and my place, and because the Father forsook Jesus so that you would never be forsaken, because the Father gave you the indescribable gift of Jesus, it is utterly inconceivable to now think that God is not for you. That's what Paul's saying. If God was on trial today, if we set up a jury on this side, and God was on trial for being good, is God good is the question that the jury are seeking to answer. God would say, I'm going to represent myself. I don't need a lawyer. <laughs> and God would, the, the, the jury or the judge would ask, so what's the evidence that you're submitting for us to consider? God says, I have only one exhibition. It's the cross of Christ. I have nothing else that I can give that's greater to tell you that I am good and that I am for you. There isn't something greater. Have you ever, I know you've never thought this. Have you ever, I'm sure you've bumped into someone else. Not you, but someone else who's, who's maybe just struggling. I'm just struggling to feel God's love because this and that's happened. No, God says that's not the evidence. The evidence is I gave you my son. I can't give you a greater thing. I gave you my son. When God's put on trial, the father just points to the son and says, am I good? Am I for you? I gave you the most glorious, precious person in the universe. There's nothing more I can give you. I gave you my son. There's nothing more to add. The case is closed. The trial is over. There's no greater slam dunk of evidence than Jesus Christ dying on the cross and the Father not rescuing the Son. When Jesus is in Gethsemane and saying, Father, is there another way we can do this? And the Father says, nothing. Have you ever had an unanswered prayer? So has Jesus. The Father said, nothing. 
because there wasn't another way. The pain in the Father's heart and the pain of the Son giving Himself, there's nothing greater than God can do to you or do for you to prove that He loves you. The case is closed. So what should we say when we face incredible trials or hardship or suffering or loss? When we start asking or people around us start asking or the enemy whispers to us, is God really for me? Is God really good? Open your Bible to Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Do you see it? There isn't any other evidence that'll ever be available in the universe for all time other than Jesus dying on the cross for you. There is no greater evidence. The cross of Jesus Christ declares with more force than anything else in all creation that God is good. All the things God said to Moses, God is good, he's compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in faithful love. He forgives sin, he forgives rebellion. God loves you. Nothing shouts that more loudly than Jesus. And if God has already done that for you, since he's already given you the greatest thing he could do for you, how much more, or how much easier, you could say, is it to believe that God will continue to love and to care for you? Brothers and sisters, it just makes no sense to question God's goodness, regardless of what you're facing. I don't know everyone's stories. I don't know what you faced, but it actually doesn't matter what you're facing. It cannot triumph over the demonstration of God's love on the cross. If you know the story of the cross, if you know the story of the resurrection, and if you grasp the significance that it has for each one of our lives, that will overturn any question that we have about the goodness of God. I want to ask you, are you this morning, maybe you've arrived today and you are in your own way, maybe you've not thought about it like this, but in your own way, you have been putting God on trial. You've been asking God questions. Brothers and sisters, there's only one piece of evidence that's needed. Jesus came, he lived, and he died in our place for our sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. The very passage that was read this morning that you read at the start of worship. And that act of God is the guarantee. It's the only guarantee we will ever need to know that we can keep trusting God because God really is what he said to Moses. He is good, and he is for us. And he will keep working good for our lives in his own time and as he defines good, not as you define good. You know, about 26 years ago now, I don't have my, the ring I bought, I have the ring my wife bought, but about 26 years ago, I remember I got married when I was 22. I had no money. I was working two jobs. And I bought this ring with two little diamonds on it. They're really small now. I look at them, but... They were massive when I was 22. And I bought this little ring with two diamonds and an emerald in between. And it took everything that I had. I mean, literally, like, I, I didn't, I gave it all to buy that. And to one day, put it on Nadine's finger and say, will you marry me? And all the ladies are going, oh. <laughs> it would be crazy having given everything and then getting married for when Nadine asked for some money to catch a train, to say, 
Or find your own money. Or, or, you know, when she said, I need some money for us to buy bread. You know, do we have some money? To say, no, well, go find your own money. The, the fact that I gave her everything I had guaranteed that I'd be keen to supply any other need. Does that make sense? The greater act of love guarantees all the minor ones that follow. And so God has given you the greatest act of love already. It's the guarantee that he's going to follow through with everything else that you need. And so today I want to urge you, we're going to break bread in just a moment. I want to urge you to connect Jesus' death on the cross with your questions about the goodness of God. Don't break bread and just forget what's happening here. You're remembering, I gave you my son. I did not spare my own son, but I gave him up for you. Connect that with your questions around, is God good? And know that that resolves those questions. The evidence of the cross overwhelms all questions with a resounding, yes, I love you. Yes, you can trust me. Yes, everything I said to Moses is true. I am good. I am compassionate. I am gracious. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in love. I am the one who forgives iniquity. I am the one who forgives rebellion and sin. And since I gave you the most costly gift that I could possibly give you, it is utterly inconceivable to believe the lie of the devil that I am not for you and that I am not good and that I don't love you. So to close, before we break bread, I'm going to get us to declare something. Because we know that about God from Scripture, we can confidently declare that God is good and that He loves us. We don't have to fear anything or anyone succeeding in coming against us. There is no circumstance that can overturn the goodness of God for us, brothers and sisters. And so Paul then launches into a declaration that I actually want us to stand and to read together and let it impact us. Let's read verse 35. I don't know if you do this sort of thing, but you did it at the start of the meeting, so you can do it again, hey? So we'll try and get our timing right, okay? Let's, let's read together. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure... Let me do, let's do that again. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Stay standing if you, if you, if you could. You know that passage if you've been a believer for any length of time. But let it soak in. Do you see what Paul did there? When he's looked at Jesus not being spared for him, he is utterly secure. 
that nothing can come against him. Nothing can separate him from the goodness of God and the love of God. Not even death. I love what Tim Keller says on that point. He says, death will put you in God's arms and make you all you've ever hoped to be. You might say, yeah, but this person died. If they knew Jesus, they went to be with Jesus. Death promotes us. Death's not the end. Death's the transition from this life to eternity with Jesus, if you've put your faith in Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, I don't know what it is that you've been facing. I don't know what questions or circumstances you've experienced that have caused you to question things about God. But what I do know is that God has answered for all time. Am I good? And do I love you? Am I for you? And the answer is Jesus Christ on the cross. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.